Hello and welcome to night number six of 31 Nights of Frights, year three, the franchise. My name is Adam and I'll be your host. All right, so night number six brings us to the second installment of the Hellraiser franchise. This is the Tony Randall directed and Clive Barker produced 1988 Hellbound Hellraiser 2. This one pretty much starts nearly, I believe, the night after the first Hellraiser film, which is definitely in its favor. I would say that it's in its favor because of the fact that for all the chaos that ensues, it really does feel like the second part to the first movie. This one does have a little bit of a different feel overall, but I think we should get into the plot first. So, Kirsty, our hero from the first movie, Things are not looking so great for her because now she's in a mental institution. And that's due to the deaths of her family. And, well, police are investigating the Cotton House and they find the bed that Julia died on. We have occult-obsessed Dr. Chenard and he wants to obtain this bed because he believes that he would be able to possibly resurrect Julia. He doesn't know that it's Julia just yet. However, that is the main catalyst that sets everything in motion. Dr. Chenard's actions, as well as the bed from the first movie. This one also introduces a more human element to the character of Pinhead, who you find out was Captain Elliot Spencer in World War I. He wound up more or less being bored with life, and he wanted the box to... I guess, expand his experiences, and little did he know that he would wind up becoming the Hell Priest, known as Pinhead, later. We also have visions by Kirsty, who is seeing who she thinks to be her father, that says, help me, I'm in hell, and she believes she has to go to hell to save her father, and more or less save his soul. For as much as what this movie does right, there's a lot of things that I really do like about this movie. It does open with something that kind of annoys me a little bit, and that is all the flashback scenes from the first film. I understand that they want to remind people of what happened to the events of the first film, but again, this was done roughly about a year later, and I really think they could have did without the flashbacks at the very beginning. It is cool because it is a re-edited, ramped-up version, so it's not like, say, the Friday the 13th films that show stuff from the previous movie, and it feels like the exact same footage. This here is the exact same footage, but of course cut in a different way, so it feels different. And that's welcome, even though I don't think they had to go that route as far as showing us everything we've seen before. But honestly, that's really the only negative that I can think of for this movie. And that's the only misstep here because, as I stated, there's a lot of things done right. The good thing, it feels like a direct continuation of the first movie. And that definitely works in its favor because you really do get that they go hand in hand with one another. However, it does feel different. The first one had a little bit of a morals tale to it and this one has a bit of a fairy tale type of feel to it almost like a straight-up fantasy film yes there's horror moments 
but it really does feel like a horror-themed version of Labyrinth to me in a way. And it's just because of the way the, the hell landscape is portrayed here. Again, I really do like the fact that hell is portrayed as a very cold and empty place. It's not the fire and brimstone stuff that we're used to seeing. Instead, we get a very unique vision that in many ways is just as scary as what a fire and brimstone version would be. One of the well-executed scenes in the movie is how Kirsty is manipulated into thinking that it's her father that is trying to lure her into hell. And instead, no, it's Frank from the first movie. And Frank, again, still has his incestuous obsession with Kirsty. And I would say that the, the overall twist and with the way uh, Frank said that he could not be satisfied by the women in his own hell because of the fact that they disappear and are bloody and stuff when he does see them. It's a very unique scene. It's actually a very creepy scene, and it's creepy in many different ways. I did like the fact that they brought back Julia from the first movie. She is a great villain. However, she is not really the villain here. She is, sure, because she does kind of want to get revenge on Frank, and she really doesn't care about Kirsty, so her evil intentions are definitely verified here. However, her reintroduction is a very rough scene, in my opinion. That's the one scene that, I don't know, kind of gets under my skin a little bit. Dr. Chenard winds up taking one of his patients, who believes that they have bugs crawling all over them, and, well, he gives the guy a blade, and the guy winds up cutting himself up on the bed. It's a very mean-spirited and nasty scene, and it seems to go on a little bit too long, in my opinion. I think they should have edited it down a little bit. It's not the fact that I'm truly disgusted by it. It just truly makes me uncomfortable. And maybe that's part of the thing, is that the Hellraiser series seems to want to creep you out as opposed to providing jump scares or anything like that. There's not very many jump scares that I can think of in the franchise. And this is another one where it just kind of wants to creep you out a little bit. And I think it's pretty successful with... And I think it's pretty successful with what it sets out to do. The other character, Tiffany, who is a mute, that is a mute because of what she witnessed, and she seems to like puzzles. So Dr. Chenard actually uses her to open up the box. This here is another one where Pinhead is not the villain. He only becomes a villain in, I would say, number three and more or less number four. But here, he's still judge, jury, and executioner, and he wants to actually bring Kirsty back to hell and leave her there for all of eternity. But then again, also, he seems to somewhat take pity on her a little bit. And I think it's an interesting aspect as far as the Kirsty and Pinhead relationship. As much as they're against each other, they almost seem to have a mutual respect for one another even though, of course, Kirsty just wants to keep on living. The actual real villain here is Dr. Chenard, who becomes a Cenobite of his own. His Cenobite is interesting. I don't quite understand why Leviathan would actually go and 
kill Dr. Chenard, however it does, so maybe it's something I missed and have continued to miss all these years in my multiple viewings of these films. However, it just doesn't quite gel completely with me, but honestly, that's probably a very small complaint overall compared to everything that the movie does right. Some of the more interesting aspects that this film includes is the fact that hell would be different for each person. And I kind of like that idea, and I think that that might be, if there would be a hell, that that's how it might be. It's based off of basically our fears and our desires, and the fact that everybody would get a personalized version curated by Pinhead and the various Cenobites is an interesting thing to me. No, the Cenobites are not the devil, and for what I see in here, the devil doesn't actually exist in this version of the bad afterlife. However, the whole idea with Leviathan, it reminds me of the Eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't know if this was an intentional thing. I've never read the Lord of the Rings books. However, I've seen the movies. Just the whole idea with that, it that's almost what it reminds me of. The other good thing about this film is that we get to see Pinhead as his human form. And normally I would think that would be something of a deal breaker, but instead this strengthens the character of Pinhead. Because we have the character of Elliot Spencer, and then we also have Pinhead in this film. It's fascinating to me that Elliot Spencer is still more or less inside of Pinhead. So his soul has been corrupted and tainted. And by the end of it, their souls wind up being freed because they're killed by Chenard. So all of the different Cenobites, we see who they are. One of them is a child. I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. And so it separates the actual person from the monster. And so that's where in Hellraiser 3, we will have a little bit of a duality as far as Elliot Spencer and Pinhead. And we'll get to that uh, on Hellraiser 3 when I tackle that one. But still, it's a fascinating thing to see them as their human forms and the fact that it separates and saves their souls in the process because they are killed. This, of course, does have a sequel ending to it, even though it does feel like it completely ends the Kirsty Cotton saga. And for the most part, it does. We don't revisit Kirsty again in a future form until Hellraiser 6. I wanted to say a future form because she does appear in one of the other Hellraiser films, which again, I'll get to later. But we're supposed to assume that she goes on and has a happy life, and I would imagine she would help take care of Tiffany for the time being. And, well, all is good in the world. Except for the fact that Pinhead's soul winds up being put into one of the statues, and that sets it up specifically for the third movie. I get the feeling that they were okay and content with maybe there only being two films in the series. However, of course, money affects those decisions. And five years later, we would have Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. I will talk about that on a different night. However, the ending for this does directly set up 
Hellraiser 3. But again, this is another one in a horror franchise where the second film is actually a pretty strong movie, and this one actually supplements the first film really well. And I think it's time to close out tonight's episode. As a reminder, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam underscore analyzes. Also, don't do the whole social media thing. That's cool. I got you covered. All you have to do is drop me an email at adamanalyzespodcast at gmail.com. And the last thing, if you do have a free moment, I would definitely appreciate it if you would leave me a five-star rating at the podcast listening platform of your choice as that'll allow me to reach new listeners and continue doing this. And as always, you know, I do love those digital hugs. But with that being said, be kind and good night.